And so we've been working through, we're on message five today. And um, last week we looked at um, the problem that Israel had in its um, obligations to the poor and to the needy. And um, after the message was over, you know, we have our, our Q&A session. Um, Ashley made the comment. She says, well, I'm feeling pretty bad. I'm feeling pretty bad because it doesn't seem like, I'm just, this is paraphrasing, Ashley. Um, I'm feeling pretty bad because it seems like um, from what we understand and hear from the media, everything that we do from driving our cars to eating of certain types of meat, of the electricity that we use, we can never get away from um, oppressing people or causing damage to the environment and causing problems and misfortune to others. And so um, the strong message of, of Amos is to, is to move away from oppressing and neglecting the poor and the, and the needy and to, to hate evil, to do good, and establish justice in the gates as we wait for uh, the hope of Messiah, which John's song was, was all about there. And so one of the questions that has arisen and, and is always on our minds, really, I think, is uh, to what extent is our obligation? And uh, what does it mean as, you know, are, are we really oppressors if we participate in, in systems that are inherently corrupt or if they have oppressive aspects to them? So that is, that is, those are the ideas that I want to talk about today. And, and, and we're going to look at, uh, so there's, there are four specific indictments that God brings upon Israel. <coughs> Excuse me for um, the their their it's, it's very specific descriptions of what they've done wrong, and so we're going to hit four of them. The first one today is the oppression of the poor and the needy. Um, but in this, we're going to ex- we're going to try to get some refinement as to what it means to. Um, to really fulfill the, the, the requirements of God and the requirement, requirements of Scripture and to be free in ourselves to enjoy material possessions because the vision that God gives the people of Israel in the end of the book of Amos is a, is a, a vision of material prosperity. And this was to be a motivation for them in their, in their righteous treatment of people. And it's the, really the vision and the promise that God had given ancient Israel uh, throughout their entire history, so we are we are members of we are members of uh, the Wedge Co-op in the Wedge neighborhood in, in Uptown Minneapolis. The Wedge is one of the oldest co-ops um, in in the Twin Cities, if not the country, and it's one of the most successful. The last two years, it's grossed over uh, fifty million dollars in revenue. People from all over the country send. Uh, their folks to the wedge to learn about how they have done what they've done and how they've become so successful. They've, they have a huge network of local food producers. They own their own organic food distribution system. Uh, it's a great co-op. You, you walk in there and you don't feel like you could ever do anything harmful to the environment at all. You know. Now, we're also members of Costco. 
So we go there. I, was taking, I took Amanda there uh, last week. I think we were, I think we were buying a um, hamburger for sliders for the, the football game parties that we were hosting at our house. And we're just looking at the hamburger. You know, and it comes in these massive packages, and it's like, you know, $2.99 a pound or whatever, half the price that you can get it for at the wedge. And so I'm picking it up, and Amanda's like, you know, I'm not going to eat that. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, she's gone down to St. Olaf, and she's gotten liberal, and she's turned into a vegetarian or something. I'm like, what do you mean you're not going to eat that? Oh, no, those animals were treated poorly. I'm not going to eat that hamburger. And so, you know, you're walking through Costco, and, and there are just pallets and pallets, and you come to the coffee, and it's like, you know, small batch produced. And you're like, huh? Small batch produced? This is in pallets at Costco. And, you know, how many Costco stores are there throughout the country? It's, there's no way this could be small batch produced. So everything there seems to be the opposite of, of your experience um, at the Wedge. And, uh, you know, there are reasons we shop at the Wedge, and there are reasons we shop at Costco. Our, our monthly food budget is, is quite high. And uh, if we were to buy everything at the Wedge, we, it would simply, we simply couldn't afford it. Um, but you know what? There, there is a whole system of judgment about these kinds of things. You know, for a while, I was hesitant to tell people in our neighborhood that we were members of and, and shopped at Costco. But come to find out, a lot of our neighbors, you know, this is the wedge. You know, it's, it's, it's super liberal. Uh, everything is alternative and different than the traditional ways. Um, and it's like, they're members of Costco as well. But we, we have these, these judgments about where we eat, what we eat, where we buy things, the electricity that we use. I don't know, I'm sure most of you have gotten something in the mail. You know, you can have an option to buy your electricity um, from a solar field, from a solar farm, solar panel, solar generated electricity. It's a little bit more expensive than the regular electricity, which is some combination. I don't think Excel uses coal anymore. This nuclear, maybe a little bit of coal. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, if you wanted to have a clear conscience in regard to where your electricity was coming from, you can purchase the solar electricity. So all of these kinds of things. And it becomes, it becomes extremely burdensome. And I think Ashley's comment last week was, was very understandable and hit the point exactly. How can we live in this world and not oppress people? Because the, the message that we're constantly getting is that population growth, um, economic prosperity, um, Western capitalism, multinational organizations, all of these things that maybe we aren't the CEOs of or maybe not even employees of, but we certainly are all beneficiaries of or at least users of, okay? And so we, 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 we come to feel like there's nothing that we can do to escape um, being guilty of what I described last week in, a, in terms of oppressing people. And the church has not been unaffected by these. And what, what has happened in the church, and I, when I say the church, I'm talking about Christianity, those who would call themselves Christians, whether it's evangelical, Catholic, Protestant, but let's just talk about our church. Um, 
it is easy for us, and I know it exists, uh, for us to even cast judgment on others for these types of things, places where we work, um, the type of work we do, the, where we, all these things, food, electricity, these, these kinds of things. And the scriptures are very clear. Um, Paul, in, in Colossians, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And he says in Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are called to freedom. And it's not as if the systems that we are living in, from a, from a political standpoint, from an economic standpoint, um, from a, a multinational globalization standpoint, these are not new things in the history of the world. These are not new things. But if we are not careful, and if we don't, and if we don't let the scriptures and Jesus Christ define what our responsibilities are, um, what does it mean to oppress people? If we, don't let, if we don't let God define what these things are, and if we don't align our consciences to, to God, we're going to be pulled inside of this sphere in the world um, in judging our, ourselves and letting others judge us and judging others. And it, it's, it, it's subtle, but what it does is it sets up these systems of righteousness. And when I say the word righteousness, what I mean by that is that um, a, it's, righteousness is a sense of being right and true and fair and whole and complete and good. Okay? So in our constant longing and pursuit of these things, which is a worldwide desire, to be whole, to be complete, to have a sense that we are good and right and fair and true to, to ourselves and to those around us. That's, the, that's what the world is after. I mentioned a, uh, a year ago, about this time, uh, after the election of President Trump, uh, I quoted from a book called uh, The Righteous Mind. It is an explanation about how, how both the left and the right politically, and all political expressions are expressions of what we consider to be right. And the full realm of righteousness entails all of what the, quote, political, the political parties would, would have us believe is their kind of flag. And so we've got to think critically about this. And when we come to these hard words, these prophetic words, and the prophets are hard, the prophets are hard on us, we can easily enter into these places of guilt and shame, not places of freedom. And so I want to do three things today. I want to look at and define what does it mean to neglect and oppress the poor and the needy. Second thing I want to do is to clarify the extent of our responsibility while living in structural systems we know to be oppressive to some degree. Okay, like Western capitalism, like democracy. And the third thing that I want to do is clarify the extent of our responsibility to engage in justice. Okay, we are to hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. That's the message that, uh, the, that we got from the sermon last week and from, from Amos. So we're going to look at what it means to neglect and oppress the poor. 
we're going to clarify the extent of our responsibility while we are living in uh, potentially oppressive systems, and we're going to look at the extent of our responsibility to engage in justice. And so what does it mean to neglect and oppress the poor and the needy from the perspective of Amos? And there are three passages that primarily deal with this. Tana read from one, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. There are two others, chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And I've already read these in previous sermons, so I'm not going to read them this morning. But I, I just want to highlight what these, these things are. So these are all contained in the book of Amos, and these are things that the nation of Israel was guilty of. Perversions of justice through bribery, where those who have means pervert justice at the cost of those who don't have means. So if the rich didn't feel like a court case was going their way, they would use their money, which the poor didn't have, to get their way. They'd bribe the judge or the jury or however system the elders that they used back then. So that's one way. Second way is that they would enslave people due to debt. And so if somebody owed them money, this was in direct violation of the Mosaic Law. If somebody owed them money, um, they would then take that person to be a, like a personal household slave. Number three, they would suppress the legal rights of the poor and needy protracting their state. Again, there's a, a, a perversion of justice. And they, the, the rights of the poor and the oppressed, because they couldn't, they didn't, they couldn't go to court to handle legal problems because the, the, the rich would just bribe the judge. So they could never have injustices, general injustices, whether things were stolen from them or whatever. They could never find fair treatment. Excessive or illegal taxation. So taxes are necessary for the operations of government. God teaches that. Old Testament, New Testament. Taxes aren't evil. But oftentimes they would collect excessive taxes from the poor and the oppressed. Again, why would they do that? Because they knew that they wouldn't get in trouble from the courts because they had the courts in their pocket. There is the sexual abuse of the vulnerable. The passage says that both a father and a son would go into the same young woman. Okay, so there's, there is the vulnerable people in the society, just like there are today, and there would, they, they would be taking advantage of that from a sexual standpoint. And Lawrence is going to deal with sexual immorality as a whole in one of the indictments. Number six, false balances and dishonest business practices. Okay, so when Tanner read, they would make the, the, uh, the, the omer small and the, um, the money great. So they, you know, in terms of weights and measures, if you'd go to buy um, like a quart of grain or a quart of flour, their quart wouldn't be a full quart. It'd be like nine-tenths of a quart. All right, and they would be charging the same for a quart, but you're not getting a quart. It'd be like us going to the gas station or buying anything off the grocery shelves, and the label would be not accurate. Okay, you're not really getting a gallon of gas. You're getting three-quarters of a gallon of gas, but you're still paying two sixty-nine for a gallon. All right, so these kinds of things. They would set up systemic ways in their business practices to take advantage of the poor and the needy. And again, the poor and the needy had no recourse because they could not go to the courts. And so these are the seven things that they are directly doing, okay? Now, 
We looked last week at, um, you know, the, the big theme from last week was the, uh, what, is, what is the difference between material, material delight and indulgence? And so one of the passages we read was a prophetic word against the wives of the politicians and the businessmen. And the, and the wives wouldn't engage in these things specifically, right? But the husbands would out of an effort to please their wives. The wives would be luxuriously hanging out, getting massages, drinking wine, and commanding their husbands to continue to fulfill all their luxurious desires. And so the husbands, out of a desire to please their wives, would scurry off and oppress the poor and the needy of the land uh, so that they could accomplish the desires of their wives. And so the wives wouldn't go about these things, but the men would. And so the women were accomplices. Okay, They were part of the system. So they did have conditions where um, they were guilty of these types of things. Now, I would say, before we get into the other two points that I want to make, that, you know, if we think about, all right, so I did some, when I was in school, I did some studies on local food, you know, and a lot of the fruit and produce that we eat is from South America, you know, so I read all this stuff on, you know, the amount of, of carbon used, the pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of carbon used to get like a pound of bananas from Chile to my front door, to my kitchen, you know, and so, uh, yeah, there is an environmental toll on us eating bananas from South America, okay? I would say that that's not the same as active engagement in these things, Okay, so at one level, if we look at the types of things that God is judging Israel about, if we could go through this list and say, you know what, I am not guilty of any of these, that's, that's doing pretty well, okay? Now, is it possible that we are buying things or using things or paying taxes for things that goes to corporations or governments or entities that are engaged in these things, or at least in not even paying fair wages to day laborers, okay? Because that's also one of the commands in the law is that they were to pay their day laborers fairly and timely, okay? So if we throw that in there, it's possible that we pay taxes to government and to other governments, okay? I just... Uh, bought a visa to travel to Mozambique in a couple of weeks, and the majority of that <clears throat> money, excuse me, the majority of that money goes to the Mozambique government, okay? Now, we've got complaints about the United States government. Let me tell you, the Mozambique government is a lot worse off. So I just contributed to the Mozambique government in terms of the corruption that exists not only in Mozambique, but in a lot of African governments and in our own government. All right? So we participate in systems. So the next thing that I want to look at, first of all, if, if you are engaged in any of these things specifically, you should feel a heavy weight of guilt. All right? If you're not, 
if you're not engaged in any of these things specifically, like by your own actions, or you are in direct support of it, in direct support of it, I mean, like you know what's going on, you know the people that are doing it, and you're encouraging them to do it, and somehow supporting them in that, enabling them. If you're not, then I want you to feel a little bit of freedom in that, ooh, okay, so at least in terms of how Amos defines oppressing people, I'm not guilty of that. All right, so now I'm just back to where our, how our culture defines oppressing people. All right, and because I'm a part of Western capitalism, and, and I'm in the wealthiest country in the world, and we use 25% of the resources only, even though we're only 5% of the people, and all these things that you're always reading about, okay? How do we think about our responsibility while living in this structural system? And we're going to go to a story out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and it's the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you are probably familiar with it, I would assume. I'm just going to read it. So Jesus, so he's kind of heading to Jerusalem for his fate. He entered Jerusalem, excuse me, he entered Jericho, and he was passing through. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, if you want to follow along. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man, man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what did it mean for Zacchaeus to be a chief tax collector? So let me tell you a little bit about how the Romans, Roman tax system worked. And so there would be districts that um, they would have boundaries for. And, and what Rome would do is that they would set up an auction for the highest bidder to go and be the tax collector for that region. All right, so it wasn't like there was this established tax code that was uniform for everybody. All right? now, again, you say, well, our tax code isn't uniform and fair. Okay, but this one was just blatantly. I mean, at least we all download the same forms, right? This was blatantly not fair. So tax collectors, so he was, he was a chief tax collector, what they called a tax farmer. So Zacchaeus would go... And I don't know if they had like a one day a year. I don't know the system exactly. But he would go and, and he would bid on being the chief tax collector for this area. So he's like, you know, I want to be the tax collector for the state of Minnesota. And I'm going to bid a million dollars. 
If he had the highest bid, he would be the official Roman tax collector for the state of Minnesota. So they had to be wealthy to start out with, or some way of, you know, the, the, of a, obtaining wealth. But once they got to that point, so he had to collect a certain amount of taxes from this region. All right, but all of the ta- and so then he would go and then he would hire tax collectors. All right, so he, he would hire on-the-ground people. He was the chief, and then he had this, this team of agents, okay? And they would collect taxes. And it was known, it was known that they all charged more than what they were supposed to. So when John the Baptist, in the early beginnings of Jesus' ministry, in the beginnings of the Gospels, uh, the tax collectors, because he was saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is near, the Messiah is coming, and he's going to judge. The tax collectors were all circling around John the Baptist, and they would, they would ask him, what should we do to prepare for judgment? What should we do to prepare for Messiah? And John the Baptist's response was, only collect what you're supposed to. Only collect what you're supposed to. So here you have Zacchaeus. Okay, so he... Because he is, first of all, a Jew, he's a Jew, working for Rome, which is already oppressing and occupying the Jews, all right, and Jewish land. So Rome is already oppressing. And here comes a Jew under the oppressive system of Rome and multiplies the oppression as a Jew, all right? So the tax collectors... In ancient Israel at the time of Christ, were the worst of the worst. And to go into the home of a tax collector was to be unclean. So Jesus goes into the home of Zacchaeus, automatically rendering himself unclean from the perspective of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. And Zacchaeus is immediately, you don't have, there's no interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus. It's not, I mean, just a a few verses before is Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, Jesus, I've fulfilled all the commandments. What should I do to follow you? And Jesus says, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. This is just a few verses later. Zacchaeus didn't need to be confronted. He already knew what he was doing wrong. And so he declares to Jesus, after, after they had meal or before the meal, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And if I've stolen anything from anybody, I'm going to return it fourfold. Okay, the, the requirement of the Mosaic law was that they would return it double. So if you stole 10 bucks from somebody, you owed them 20. Zacchaeus is saying, listen, if I've stolen 10 bucks from anybody, I'm going to give them 40 back. Now what does Jesus do? Here you have the unclean of the unclean, the oppressor, the oppressor, all right, working for Rome, corrupt, hurting his own people. Jesus doesn't tell him to go find a more righteous job. Jesus doesn't tell him to get out of the system. Jesus was a small businessman as a carpenter and paid taxes to Rome. Jesus participated in the system. He didn't tell Zacchaeus to get out of the system. He didn't tell Zacchaeus to stop being a tax collector. He says, salvation, the kingdom of God, has come to this home. And what is Zacchaeus going to do now? Zacchaeus is going to go into the world, into the corrupt system that he's in. 
to the occupying force of Rome in Jewish lands. And he's going to continue to be a tax collector. But now he's going to be a tax collector that's given half of his property away? That is returned four times the amount that he has stolen? What is Zacchaeus going to be now in the world of tax collectors? He is going to be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So he's stepping back. He's stepping back into the world system. He's acknowledging, and Jesus is acknowledging, it is not the time or the place for all of these things to be obliterated. The disciples asked Jesus before he ascended, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, no, it's not for you to know. See, in the mind of Jesus, everything is corrupt. Everything is corrupt. That's the, that's the essential element of the doctrine of depravity, is that we cannot escape. We cannot escape the corruption that is in this earth. You try to do one thing, that's good, and it's going to have consequences that are bad. All right? That's always going to be the case. There are unintended consequences because we can never get away from the corruption that is in the earth until Jesus returns. And Jesus knew that. And so Jesus isn't thinking that we all need to withdraw from these potentially corrupt and oppressive systems. We're in it. You will not find a government in this world that is not somehow connected to oppression and unrighteousness and corruption. You will not find an economic system in this world where greed is not present and where it's not fair and where everything is fair. It's just not, it's not possible. That is that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the hope of a future kingdom where Jesus will return. He's going to destroy the current earth in its corrupt state, and he's going to establish a new earth and a new heavens. And he will establish a kingdom that will be fully fair and righteous and just, where oppression won't exist in terms of direct actions or even in the structural states. All right, so there was a responsibility that Zacchaeus had in, in, in his unrighteousness. He needed to be generous to the poor and the needy, and he needed the right to, to right the wrongs that he had done. That's, that's what we can do in a world system. We can be lights of the gospel of Jesus Christ by going into its economic and political systems engaging in those things, but, but doing them in a different way. Doing them in a way that highlights the gospel and the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the third question, what is the extent of our responsibility to engage in justice? So this story is, that, is the story of Lazarus and the rich man from Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man. Yeah, let me get a drink here first. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I want to introduce, I mean, I've mentioned it a few times, and we're going to work through, at least explain to some degree, this idea of of moral proximity. So let me just ask, and you can respond to this one, so we'll do a little Q&A before the Q&A time. Why was the rich man in Hades? Why was the rich man in Hades? Was it because he was rich? No, it's because he disobeyed the law and the prophets. He disobeyed the law and the prophets. That's the, that's the, the takeaway from this passage. How did he disobey then is the question. How did he disobey the law and the prophets? By never showing any sort of mercy or generosity or kindness to Lazarus. The rich man isn't condemned for being rich. The rich man is condemned for not sharing. See, the the vision and the the anticipation of God in the nation of Israel was that there would be people who would become very prosperous, the whole nation. You're going to be throwing out the old food as you're taking in the new. You're going to have more wine than you can ever believe to drink. It's going to be dripping from the mountains. But there were obligations that came, and we looked at that two weeks ago. The poor man was in the moral proximity of the rich man. Lazarus was in the moral proximity of of the rich man. And so John Schneider says this, Lazarus occupies what we might think of as a genuine moral space on the rich man's doorway. Because it says there was a poor man at his gate. It is difficult to analytical 
I think I missed a word there. It is difficult to define this in analytical terms, but the narrative vividly conveys that Lazarus is more to this rich man than just one more beggar among tens of thousands of others like him on the streets. Lazarus has established a residence and a moral location in the rich man's life. So, and so his condition becomes important to the rich man's moral life. His narrative identity and place are what give him a proximity to the rich man, and that is what makes his eating and drinking so culpable. Not the poor in the abstract, but Lazarus is his test, and he fails. Lazarus was at his door every day. And that was the rich man's opportunity to fulfill the law and the prophets. But he didn't. Every day his test was before him. Not some obscure abstract idea. Not being a part of a structural system that's been in operation for hundreds of years that is beyond anybody's capacity to even completely define, understand, or control. But this man, Lazarus was his name. We don't even have the name of the rich man. But people knew Lazarus. The rich man knew Lazarus. And that defined the rich man's sphere of moral responsibility. And so when we begin to ask ourselves the question, okay, where is our sphere of moral proximity? Where am I, who am I morally responsible for that I'm going to be judged for? Begins with your family. Begins with your family. Then it extends to your church. Then it extends to your neighbors. Okay, and then you're, well, who is my neighbor? Then you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. All right? The Samaritan helps the Jew when the priest and the Pharisee, who were Jewish leaders, didn't. The Samaritan was the outcast, the Samaritan was the neighbor. But the Samaritan stumbled upon the man who had been beaten and robbed in the street. And so again, we saw there's moral proximity that the Samaritan had there to the man who had been beaten and robbed in the street. Paul establishes this principle also in the book of Galatians. He says, do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And then in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, he says, a man is responsible to take care of the widows in his household. He is responsible to take care of his family. If he's not able to take care of his family, then the church has a responsibility to take care of that widow. But he says if a, if a person has the responsibility and the means to take care of somebody in their family, but doesn't do so, he is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. So the scriptures has this, it has this understanding that we have we have spheres of moral responsibility. Spheres of moral responsibility based upon proximity, their closeness to us. Now the challenge comes, and this is a unique thing here in the U.S., and it deals with income inequality. Got some quotes here. So Michael Sandel, Harvard Business School professor, wrote this book called Justice, What is the Right Thing to Do? And at the end of the book, he's describing what it's going to take to create a just society. And he has four things, but one of them, he says, is that we've got to deal with this issue of income disparity. Not because that there are rich people and poor people, but because of the effects. 
And, and he noted what was happening in that the rich people in America are continuing to um, get closer and closer and closer and closer to each other in moral proximity to where they don't have poor people in their lives. There's a book called Charles Murray that, uh, that Meredith put me on to called Coming Apart. And his, this, his entire book is on this dynamic. And he just shows over the last two decades how, how rich have become, upper middle class and the upper class have, have increasingly become isolated from the rest of the world, but it is these people that set the political and economic structures of our society. During the late 20th century, in other words, the well-educated and the affluent increasingly segmented themselves off from the rest of American society. And so what we have is a, is a cultural movement to where we have the upper classes and the upper middle classes um, moving further and further away from having people within their moral proximity that are poor. And so they don't know what it means. They don't see it. They don't have Lazarus on their doorsteps. They don't see crime. They don't see addiction. They don't see substance abuse. They don't see human trafficking. They don't see all of these kinds of things. And yet, it is these people that are increasingly in charge of government, politics, economics, and et cetera, and all these things. And we can sit back and despair. <laughs> I don't have a solution to that. Nobody's got a solution to that. I mean, there are people that propose solutions. What is our responsibility? What is our responsibility? We are called to hate evil, do good, and establish justice. Justice is treating people fairly. It is taking care of the poor, the needy, the vulnerable. It is being generous, having a lifestyle of generosity. Those are the three big ideas behind what it means to have a life that is just. The first thing we need to do is examine our gates. Examine our gates. We need to ask ourselves, are there poor, needy, vulnerable, vulnerable people in our spheres, our moral spheres of responsibility, the people that we see and interact with on a somewhat regular basis? If there is... You have responsibility for them from a moral standpoint. If you don't, if you don't, if you can't identify poor, vulnerable, or needy people at your gates, you need to step back and ask yourselves, okay, how can I change my lifestyle? What do I need to do to enter into the lives of people that I should have moral responsibility for? Because we can make decisions to completely get away from having any moral responsibility to the poor and the needy and the oppressed. There are neighborhoods in the Twin Cities where you can't see it anywhere. And the kids go to schools where they don't see it anywhere. And then they go to colleges where they do not see it anywhere. And then they go into the workplace where they do not see it anywhere. And they never are exposed to the poor, the vulnerable, the needy, and the oppressed. We, the, the consultant that we hired, his name is Richard Klopp, and he grew up in Africa, and he's seen all this kind of stuff. 
uh, in terms of racism and economic problems in, in Africa. And, and then he's, he's a well-read guy. He's got a PhD in philanthropy and fundraising. Had no idea of what was going on in the United States prison system. Okay, which is something obviously that we've been significantly involved with. And he just was like, whoa. And he said, you know, I, I want to be a part of what you guys are doing, not because you're paying me, but because this is, this is stuff that we've got to be about in terms of mission. Thankfully, Robert Bella identifies this. He's a prominent sociologist. Was he? He's dead. He's a scholar out of Berkeley. He sees that the churches are one of the last places in our modern society where you have a mixing of socioeconomic racial classes. We have people in the church that have a lot of people at their gates that are poor and needy and vulnerable. We do. So if you don't have any people in your gates like that, then you need to get to know some of the people that have those people at their gates and go up and ask, hey, what can I do to help you serve the people that are in your gates that are in need? And that's why we started Twin Cities Ministries. That's why we started Twin Cities Ministries, because Seth had access and history and experience with a whole lot of people that we would consider at the, in the gates like this. And we were praying for an opportunity. And so Seth has a vision, so we created Twin Cities Ministries. And you guys know the rest if you've been here very long. But let me tell you, if you're not helping Twin Cities Ministries in any way, let me just, let me just tell you one. If you, were, if you just sent in to the office, to Sylvia, hey, I want to give $5 a month, automatically withdrawn from my checking account, $5 a month. Start doing something like that. We have about, I think, about maybe 15 or 20 households in the church that are just giving something a month. Some big, some small. But let me tell you, everything helps. And it goes to help those folks. And they can, you've heard testimony of the extent to which it's helpful. That's, that's one way that you could fulfill some of these obligations. And there are many more. In our house churches, we have people come up all the time. Hey, we have a family you know, teachers, we have, we have a family in, in uh, uh, one of the students in my class, and there's these needs. How can we meet those needs? Those kinds of things come up. Okay, those are people that we are now morally responsible for because they're in our, they're in our gates. They're in our gates. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's still burdensome. <laughs> even if you don't, even if you're able to kind of push off, okay, I don't have to meet all of the needs of the poor around the world. I don't need to be giving to somebody in Africa to meet all of the needs of the poor. I don't, I, I don't need to completely pull away from buying my groceries at Cub Food or Costco. All right, so now there's some freedom, but there's still a great amount of obligation. And the obligation is twofold. You have an obligation to enjoy and delight in what God has given you. I mean, this comes back to this circle. What, what, you have, what you have, all of your property, has been given to you by God. What you enjoy has been given to you by God. What keeps you alive has been given to you by God. If you can acknowledge it is a gift from Him in humility, all right, that is the precursor to gratitude. 
And gratitude is an expression of joy. And it gives you the ability to, to delight in and enjoy what you have because it's been given to you, but it hasn't been given to you just for you to enjoy. But I, again, I, I, I argue, <clears throat> until you enjoy something, until you delight in it, you can't give it away as an act of worship. And God wants you to give it away as an act of worship. He wants you to give it away because the grace that you have experienced from him, he wants you to experience that grace and to fully experience that grace means that you are going to follow him in that grace, which means that you are going to, you're going to give generously. God sacrificed his son. Jesus, though being rich, became poor so that we could become rich. And he did it so that he could experience a greater joy. He scorned the cross looking forward to the joy that was set before him. We will experience greater joy when we receive with humility, experience the grace, delight in it, enjoy it. And you enjoy it and you love it so much that you want others to enjoy it. You don't want, you don't want people to enter into a place of oppressive guilt. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freely enjoy, freely give. That's what we're obligated to do. But don't overburden yourself with the entire sin of the world. That is Jesus' responsibility. And he will come back, and he will be the Messiah. We can't be Messiah. We have people that God has put in our lives. Let's be faithful to the people that God has put in our lives. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for the beautiful parables uh, in the Word and for Jesus and his wisdom, which was greater than Solomon's. And we ask, God, that you could fill us with the, with the same wisdom and, and help us to really take seriously the obligations that we have to the people in our gates. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.